Poole Couch Podcast is a weekly conversation with Dr. Lakeitha Poole, a licensed professional counselor in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, about all things mental health and personal growth. The Emerald Couch Podcast is the go-to pop psych dialogue for self-help, good laughs, and real talk. This podcast is not meant to be a substitute for seeking support from a licensed mental health professional and is for educational and entertainment purposes only. For more information about counseling and therapeutic services, or for assistance in connecting with a therapist in your area, visit our website at www.smalltalkcounseling.com. Let's start the show. Welcome back to another episode of the Emerald Couch. This is your host, Dr. Lakeitha Poole. Thank you guys, as always, for tuning in, following us on social media, keeping in touch. Uh, We truly, truly appreciate it and hope that you continue to enjoy the show and to engage with us. Um, So this week, I had another topic planned um, to close out the month of October, but I really want to address something that took place uh, most recently this past weekend, but that continues to affect all of us as we continue to see a lack of change or action um, throughout the nation around this this topic. And so I'm kind of going to combine our general topic, which we usually do, which is always mental health related, and our usual pop psych moment of the week to sort of discuss this um, extremely tragic, but very, very important issue. So um, this week, I'd like to talk about Um, our Jewish community friends and family um, who is in mourning after a gunman killed 11 worshipers on Saturday morning at Tree of Life, which is a Pittsburgh synagogue, um, and what has now become the deadliest attack ever on Jews in the United States. And so, of course, we dedicate today's show to those 11 victims, as well as to their family, um, as well as to anyone who identifies as Jewish, You know, I think we've talked a lot on this show about identity and um, some of the stressors that come with that, not because of the person themselves identifying in that way, but because of other people's lack of understanding um, and acceptance and and embracing. Um, So obviously we dedicate this show to them um, and know that our prayers and our thoughts and our love um, are with all of you. So I do want to jump into this topic of mental health and mass violence, um, obviously because of what took place this weekend, but also because this continues to be an issue. And so um, I tried to start looking a little bit at articles and research. And um, I found this one article that actually was from earlier this year, around the time when we were seeing um, the Austin bombings taking place um, in April. And uh, Dr. William Kelly did an article on Psychology Today about mental illness and mass violence and sort of this concept of do they even go together? Because what we now see in the news often is um, that is the first kind of go to response um, when something like this happens is that that person was highly mentally disturbed. Um, And obviously, as a mental health clinician, um, I have a ton of empathy for um, anyone who is suffering with mental illness 
But at the same time, um, as a nation, we have to hold ourselves accountable for taking a closer look at if there are other issues that we also need to address um, in addition to or in combination with looking at mental illness around violence. So obviously with each mass shooting or any large scale sort of violent event um, like the bombings in Austin, like what we saw happen in the uh, Pittsburgh synagogue this weekend, um, you know, the names and the, the number of Um, innocent lives lost, those change, but the explanation kind of stays the same. Uh, The first thing that we hear is the killer is crazy or he had a mental illness or um, it sort of just has become automatic. Um, But what we actually are seeing through research is that despite mental illness seeming like a very logical um, and obviously convenient explanation for mass violence, um, it's actually pretty fictional. It's actually not quite the truth when we look closely at the numbers. Um, What I think people often sort of lean on is that mental illness is like a catch-all explanation. Um, It helps us be able to explain the inexplainable, and then we're able to comprehend better or at least navigate our emotions around something better when we have something to put it on or to blame. And so, of course, when we label um, a mass killer as mentally ill, it creates a division between them and us. And so now we are able to put them in a box Um, of why they did what they did, um, but also prove to ourselves why we are not like them. And so um, it's very appealing to get to use, but it also is just quite convenient. And and I think when we start thinking about um, utilizing mental illness to explain horrific acts like mass shootings in schools and um, in places of worship, it's really interesting to see that most times those come right out of camps that are in support of like the National Rifle Association or certain congressional um, platforms and members um, and state officials who um, aspire to keep the the freedoms and the rights um, associated with owning a gun um, and people's uh, right to use them as um, a, a promoted, I guess, cause. And so it's useful for politics, of course, um, but it really deflects the true attention that we, we have to talk about, which is the gun issue itself and indeed what mental health and mental illness really is. And so while this has become a really, really um, tense topic, it has also remained a, a huge problem in the U.S. And so if we continue to always sort of jump to the mental health and mental illness conclusion for the cause of mass shootings, we fail to consider some of the other causes like discrimination, like racism, like hate. Um, so there's a number of other things I hope you're seeing that we could talk through and, and connect to mental health. Absolutely. But um, solely having mental health be the cause of some of these things, I think it's a little bit unfair to those folks that do actually suffer with mental illness um, and are able to function in their everyday lives. And, and so being able to sort of erase some of those thoughts, I hope at least through our brief conversation today, we'll get to talk through. Um, I also found another article on Psychology Today um, talking about sort of like active shooters and this idea that while they may not be fully mentally healthy, that doesn't always mean that they're mentally ill. Um, if we really get down to sort of what we now know um, about discrimination, hate, racism, any of the ism, sexism, um, ableism, being able to recognize that, you know, we could really challenge this idea about most shooters um, having a mental disorder. 
Um, a lot of times, most shootings are premeditated. Um, they spend a lot of time, often weeks, months, sometimes even years, putting a plan into action to actually prepare um, to carry out their attack. And so while that person may have um, displayed concerning behaviors to family, to friends, um, it also is usually due to a string of stressors that have led up to some of those things they might be saying or doing that are a little off. Um, a lot of times these are the things that we experience in everyday life, financial strain, um, marital issues, conflicts with family and friends, problems at work. And so people will notice differences in these folks in those settings um, and usually don't say anything. And so obviously when that is happening, and we've talked on the show already about how to make sure that you help someone get support and help them to see that it might be needed. Um, and that's a whole other topic for us to talk about. But um, a lot of times while these like stressors are common, um, it may be classified under, you know, mental health concerns. Um, a crucial distinction that is that most active shooters do not have a confirmed mental illness. Um, so, again, they may display some of these like very concerning behaviors, um, oddities that make them stand out, but they may or may not have actually been formally diagnosed. And so the bigger question then is how can we promote mental health in a way that might deter some of these risks um, of active and mass shooting. So when you do see those this, those concerning behaviors, um, how do you respond to that person? What do you encourage them to do? How do you find ways to get them support or to protect them or to protect others who may um, be in harm's way because of the place that they're in? And then I think the bigger picture, um, which is not my field, but really how can we change a culture or a subculture, if we need to call it that, that glorifies gun violence, um, glorifies division among differences, um, really being able to push back. And obviously the main way, and this is a shameless plug, but it's to make sure that you're voting. Um, so please, I know when you hear this, we'll be a, about a week away um, from, from election day. And so I do hope that you have made that a priority. If you haven't already early voted, I know that I did. Um, but obviously much larger question to resolve, but just thinking about that, you know, how can we change culture, shift cultures, um, that really moves away from glorifying gun violence, glorifying racism, hate, discrimination, um, and moving towards a more unified society that embraces differences, um, and wants to gain understanding, um, in order to live in a more communal way. So, those are obviously just my thoughts on that initial connection that people instantly make between um, when acts of violence like what happened this weekend occur and what we maybe should consider as well um, in trying to find answers, which I know is what in most cases when something like this happens, we always are wanting to do. So on the opposite end of that, I do think it's important, um, as always, to acknowledge what happens with all of us emotionally. Um, who are left behind after something like this happens and kind of what is the psychological impact of mass violence for all of us. Um, and obviously it's extremely broad. It's extremely extensive. There is no single response or roadmap um, of how to respond most appropriately. And I, I put that in quotes when I say that because I don't know that there's a most appropriate way. Um, and to be even recognized that vicarious trauma is something that's real. So vicarious trauma is 
sort of lived trauma through someone else's experience um, or having to witness that or see that. And we've seen discussions about this, not just in the sort of mass violent um, issues that have taken place, but also in individual instances um, of individual violence towards folks on a basis of race or um, gender or sexual orientation um, from an individual perspective. And so all of those movements around that as well and having to see that happen so often can be extremely difficult. So um, I wanted to offer some kind of tips or just some insight into what those like psychological challenges can be um, as a result of the impact of mass violence and sort of that vicarious trauma. Um, and then also obviously close with just some ways to help um, with coping or help others to cope if you notice someone around you um, who is struggling. So the National Child Traumatic Stress Network, also known as NCTSN, um, offers that there's a combination of sort of life-threatening traumatic personal experiences, um, a loss of loved ones, disruption of routine, daily life, all these things after um, a violent incident occurs. And so these adversities obviously pose extremely challenging psychological concerns um, in the recovery of both children, especially because they're just more sensitive to it. And obviously um, that's their focus. But in general, you know, to families, to couples, to individuals. And so I definitely wanted to just kind of think about what those main affected areas are. And obviously there are more to this list, but I wanted to offer a few that stand out and that any of us at any point in time after something like this happens may notice are here um, in others. So just initial reactions to danger. And so obviously when I'm saying danger, I mean like the sense that events or activities have the potential to cause harm. Um, and in this case, cause harm again. And so, of course, in the wake of, of recent attacks, people and communities sort of have a greater appreciation for um, the enormous danger of violence and terrorism and the need for effective plans and safety. And so you're you sort of like become almost hyper vigilant about remaining safe. Um, there's a lot of widespread fear that occurs. Um, and so, of course, that can sometimes be fueled by misinformation, by rumors. Um, but danger in itself is always increased um, by the need and the, the desire to just want to be close to others when maybe that's not possible or um, obviously making a separation from someone, particularly if they were a victim, extremely difficult to manage for that person um, that remains. And so just being able to really think about initial reactions to actually what danger is and what it feels like and how that person classifies it is really, really important. Um, Post-traumatic stress reactions. So these are obviously extremely common after anything traumatic occurs. This could be anybody's life seemingly placed in the way of danger, um, not just for something that's like a mass violent attack, but in this instance, just being able to understand that these reactions are completely normal um, and expected, um, but also very, very, very serious. And so there's kind of three categories around post-traumatic stress reactions. The first would be intrusive reactions, meaning um, the ways that the traumatic experience kind of comes back to mind. And this can be like sort of recurrent thoughts or images, um, intense emotional reactions or responses to reminders of what happened. Um, and then just that constant feeling that something really, really bad or really terrible is bound to happen again. 
avoidance and withdrawal reactions. These would include avoiding people, places, and things that are reminders of what has occurred. Um, withdrawal reactions, so this might be um, being emotionally numb, feeling detached, um, separating or isolating yourself from others, and then losing interest in the things that typically bring you pleasure or that excite you. And then the third and last is physical arousal reactions. So these might include things like sleep disturbance, poor concentration, becoming more irritable, um, hypervigilant, nervous, kind of always being on the lookout um, for danger and never really being able to relax. In all of those instances, um, they model exactly what we think of as PTSD symptoms, um, but knowing that in this instance, because it's mass violence, because there's usually a lot of openness around answers to what has occurred, it makes it difficult to sort of target in um, the unlikelihood that it would happen to this particular person that might be experiencing it, um, even though they've witnessed it occur. So just thinking about that in that way, traumatic grief, um, people who suffer a loss of a loved one, and we've talked about grief on this show a couple times, um, usually go through a process of stages um, to sort of get to the other side of being able to then cope and begin to move forward. Um, when somebody loses a loved one under tr more traumatic circumstances, particularly like through um, mass violent incidences, um, their minds tend to stay on the circumstances of the death. And so there's a lot of preoccupation with how maybe they could have prevented the loss or what were the last moments like for that person, who's responsible, um, accountability of themselves for that person. Um, it changes the course of what we typically will look at grief and mourning and loss to look like. And so this obviously puts those individuals on a different track when it comes um, to figuring out their grief and really navigating what that looks like. And so being attentive to that um, based on the circumstances is also very important. Um, depression. So depression is associated with prolonged grief, like we've talked about before. And so um, the, the accumulation of post-violent adversity. So when that happens multiple times, um, or if you feel like as a you know, in this instance, if I'm a member of the Jewish community, I would now feel extremely stressed, extremely scared um, about what does it mean for this to happen again? Um, or what does it mean for this to have been happening, maybe just not in mass amounts in my everyday life? And so recognizing that at a certain point, um, that does become sort of this prolonged grieving process um, and traumatic process of always just sort of thinking something will happen and that it's bound to and almost giving into that process of, of what it means to um, have to live with that. And so, of course, these symptoms can include things like depressed mood, which is what we typically think of in depression. Um, but sleep and appetite are also affected, um, lack of interest in life activities, um, more irritable, being fatigued, feeling hopeless, worthless. Um, a lot of these things can really lead to the ultimate sort of feelings of depression that become uh, more suicidal thoughts and wanting to hurt um, oneself. And so, of course, the longer that lingers, the more likely that person is to sort of sink deeper into that experience. And so, of course, being able to pay attention to those around you who might be experiencing that as well is really, really important. Physical symptoms. Um, a lot of times survivors can also experience um, physical symptoms, even though they may not have been present um, during whatever mass event 
happen. Um, there's a lot of times, you know, no underlying like physical injury or illness, but there are a lot of physical symptoms that may occur. And these can include just things like headaches, which could obviously be a result of like not sleeping, not eating, um, stomach aches, rapid heartbeat, tightness in your chest, um, changes in your appetite, digestive issues, all of those are related to stress um, and to depression. And so, of course, if you're experiencing both of those at an, an even more intensive level, more than likely you may see some physical symptoms occur. Um, in particular, um, sometimes it's like the reaction to certain noises or sounds that may um, create some of those physical symptoms and responses. So like if someone... Um, knows that somebody passed in a car accident or they were with them, um, they survived, the other person didn't, hearing like tire screeching can lead to sort of panic um, and anxiety um, or a low mood, especially if that's like a reminder for them of what that experience was like. Panic is often kind of expressed by like the things we always think of, like rapid heart rate, respiratory concerns um, and other physical symptoms. And so more general anxiety reactions are usually expected. Um, but panic obviously can occur as well when you start thinking about those physical symptoms. Um, trauma and loss reminders. So these are the ways in which people, I think, um, try to start to get to coping. And we're going to talk about that in a second. But really to have to move through sort of those stages that we talked about in traumatic grief, um, it can be difficult. And so trauma reminders are the experiences that people continue to encounter, whether that's sights, sounds, smells, people, places, feelings that remind them of the attack that's occurred. Um, the sounds of confusion or people screaming um, can really become powerful reminders um, and can be extremely traumatic for that individual. And so oftentimes people are not aware that they're responding to the reminder either until it happens um, or, you know, they have a change in mood um, or behavior that kind of goes under the radar and somebody else may notice in them um, based on what's changed around them in their environment. Obviously, media coverage can easily serve as an unwelcome reminder um, of what has occurred. And so it's really difficult to, you know, lose someone um, and have been maybe together during that traumatic experience because that too can serve as sort of a reminder to one another um, or lead to sort of like unrecognized disturbances in those relationships with other people, particularly in the younger person's um, life. And so being able to sort of make sure that you are at least paying attention to the ways in which you or someone in your life are being reminded um, about the tragic events is also really, really important. Um, on the other end of that are loss reminders. So those obviously who've lost loved ones continue to sort of encounter these situations and circumstances that remind them that their loved one is already gone. And these reminders, of course, can bring about feelings of sadness, emptiness, um, all kinds of ways in which the survivor uh, can then themselves sink into their own mental health issues, depression, anxiety, um, because of that experience, just because they miss and long for um, their loved one's presence. And when something like this happens, it's really uh, a mix of emotions. I think that any of us feel if you've ever lost someone about this, you feel both, you know, sad that, you know, someone else's life is lost and that the life of your loved one um, has already been lost or is, is that person is gone, but also, you know, wondering what 
their reactions or responses would have been like to something like this or what would have occurred if they had been in that same circumstance. And so um, I think that that's really important to be mindful of and to pay attention to. So just to give you guys some final tips on coping, because I know that that's important and I know that this topic is difficult to talk about, um, but I, I always like to make sure that I don't open people up and then don't sew you back together and offer you um, a little wound care uh, before we wrap up the show. But um, as far as coping, there's three kind of main ways based on just what I kind of went through each of those reactions of stress and anxiety for you. Um, so physically, stress can be re- can be reduced with um, appropriate nutrition, making sure you exercise, getting good rest and sleep. Um, you obviously may have to remind folks in your life who might be struggling with what's occurred um, to do that and to take good care of themselves physically in order to be able to help others, um, particularly if you know that they are in a helping role in their lives on day to day basis or in their profession. Um, So just making sure that you and they are also getting um, proper rest um, and eating right and taking good care of yourselves. Emotional. So sometimes we have to be reminded that the emotional responses that we're having to everything are expected and that they will decrease over time, but that it takes time. And so if you start to notice someone's reactions are too extreme or don't diminish over time, then obviously helping them to get some professional support would be useful. Um, Also, just asking them about where they are in that coping process is also extremely helpful. And then lastly, from a social perspective, just making sure that you're communicating with and getting support from friends and family, um, religious institutions, um, community resources um, are a really, really, really big way of being able to cope after something extremely traumatic or almost catastrophic violence has occurred. Um, So definitely making sure that you are encouraged um, or feel encouraged and encouraging others to communicate with one another um, and to seek and use supports where they're available, particularly those lists of things that I just offered around the community or based on identity that can offer people support at this time. So those are just some ways to think about coping as well as just sort of what you may see as a result of this occurring in your own communities, not just around this topic, but obviously um, having to experience for all of us um, and see this um, tragedy occur once again in our nation is difficult. And so being able to help other people think differently about this, I think is important. So that kind of wraps up our topic for today. I appreciate you all again. Um, And again, thanks so much to all of you for tuning in for such a special issue. Um, But I think also making sure that we continue to keep our thoughts and prayers with um, the families and friends of the victims, um, as well as being able to think differently about how we ourselves cope when we start to see these things happening more and more and more that we don't become numb, but that we do something about them. Um, Typically, we also, you know, we'll do like our small talk bookshelf today. I just want to end with a quote um, that I think is useful. We don't have any Ask Dr. LP questions. So um, I'm going to, for our small talk bookshelf, just leave you all with this quote um, before we end the show. Um, So the quote says, I don't speak because I have the power to speak. I speak because I don't have the power to remain silent. And that quote is by Rabbi A.Y. Cook. And 
what I think is interesting about it and, and so powerful about it, and speaking of power, um, is being able to really recognize that we all have a voice. Um, our voice is useful in whatever ways that we have access to. Um, that includes, you know, using your profession and your professional role to spread a message that you care about on behalf of others and advocating for others, as well as being able to use the voice that we all have. And like I mentioned earlier, which is our power to speak up as citizens, and that comes through our right to vote. So just making sure that you do not silence yourself, you do not remain silent um, in the face of things that you find to be unjust that you find to be unloving um, and that go against what you value and believe as an individual. So just make sure you use your voice, use your power, speak up, speak out um, and do something about the things that you have the power to be able to do within your control. So again, no Ask Dr. LP questions this week. Um, I want to thank you all as always for tuning in. I appreciate you so, so much. Um, we'll get back to our listing of topics next week. We're actually counting down to our season finale. We have about six episodes left before we wrap up um, season one of the Emerald Couch. I'm very excited. So we have six more episodes from now through December 10th. Um, obviously, we're going to have more great topics. We'll be starting a new month. November is almost here. Um, some great discussions ahead also. And I'm really, really excited. So as always, Make sure that you have liked, followed, and subscribed um, on all of our social media platforms. If you have questions for Ask Dr. LP, um, please make sure you submit them on the website or reach out to us on any of our social media uh, pages. And as always, I thank you all so much for tuning in every single week. And I look forward to checking in with you again on next week, next time on the Emerald Couch. <music>